we gather here this morning in remembrance of you. To some, a life well lived. Maybe to others, wasted. A life, no doubt, that was human. A life that embodied what it meant to maybe try their very best, only to fall short so often. A life that revealed their weaknesses, their shortcomings, inconsistencies. And yet, by our standard, you're a good person. Surely, good enough for eternity. Good enough for heaven. Good enough for God. But I ask you this morning, to what does your life testify? To what does your life speak about? Now, for some of you this morning, the image of this as you walked in, or maybe even as the service began after this song, it was disconcerting. Because for many of us, we walk into a scene like this, and we dread that. The memories that we may personally have experienced when it comes to remembering someone that we've loved. And you see, oftentimes when we come to this place of mourning an individual... We seek to cover over that feeling of grief and mourning and sorrow with joy and memories, things of the past. But this morning, as we continue into this section of Scripture in Matthew chapter 5, we're going to look at a different type of mourning. A mourning that impacts not just who we are, but how we live and how we see who we are in light of who God is. You see, when we come to this section of Scripture in Matthew chapter 5, and we read these words, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. We automatically associate that with the loss of a loved one. And yet, when we start to study this passage of Scripture, we start to see this in light of what Jesus is talking about and who He's talking to, we'll start to see clearly that even though God's comfort for the mourning is true when we're talking about death and the sorrow that that brings, that Jesus has something much more specific in mind. Something that goes deep down into the the core of who we are. And why we do the things that we do. And so this morning, if you get nothing else out of this today, I want you to challenge yourself with this statement. 
It's our main idea for this morning. It's that in order for grace to become real, my true self has to be revealed. In order for grace to become real, my true self has to be revealed. And we're going to unpack that a little more. You'll have better understanding of that at the end of today. That's my prayer. But as we seek to understand this, I want to challenge you and your view of mourning when it, we come to this place in Scripture. And so if you take your Bibles and open up to Matthew chapter 5, that's where we're going to start. We're going to be in a, some other places. Matthew chapter 5. And if you don't have a Bible, that's okay. Grab one out of the pew in front of you. It's page 1473. You can turn right to it. All right? I want everyone to have a copy of that. Be looking at God's Word. Because that's the words we want to hear. And as we think about this difficult, difficult subject, I want us to stop and we're going to pray. Pray that God speaks clearly and that we're equipped to live faithfully in light of what God's Word says. Okay? So let's stop for a minute. Let's pray. Let's pray together. Fathers, we come to this place in Scripture. Forgive us for the times that we seek to avoid this, times that we seek to speak little of these things because of the pain associated with it. And this morning, I pray that you would give us ears to hear, eyes to see the power of your grace. Challenge us. Equip us for the work that you've called us to do as your church. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if you've been with us, you remember we've worked through a couple weeks within Matthew chapter 5. And there's a couple things I just want to remind us of as we go into this. And if we read in these first four verses... It says, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. As we think about this, and we talked last week about what it means to be poor in spirit. To be poor in spirit is to literally see myself in light of who God is. To step back from what I see myself as and look at God and look at Him again and look at Him again. And then I look back at myself. And the concept of being poor in spirit is that I see that I am spiritually bankrupt. That uh, in and of my own self I'm incapable of measuring up to the standard of who God is. And that person can be deeply joyful because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so we move into this section today. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And the first question many of us could ask is, how, how 
If to be blessed is to be deeply joyful, can someone in a state of mourning come to this place? And as we look at Jesus' statement here and the promise of comfort, my prayer is that by the end of this talk you will see clearly that that comfort extends to something that so often we lose sight of and is not what we would have expected if thought of on our own. And so as we think about this reality that for grace to become real, my true self must be revealed, the question could easily follow, what is it about my true self that must be revealed in the midst of that? And the first thing I want to challenge us with is that my true self is tainted by sin. My true self is tainted by sin. Now, when I say that, church, I want you to understand very clearly that there are sections in Scripture that we read and we go, I don't like this. This doesn't make me feel good. And I want to say that's a good thing. Because it's those sections of Scripture that challenge us to move from where we are to where God wants us to be. And so in order for us to clearly know where am I to move, what in my life needs to shift, I first have to be able to see my true self for what it is. And that starts by me seeing who I am in light of who God is. That's what we talked about last week, to be poor in spirit. But then next to that, so clearly, is this idea that blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And we start to see, wait a minute, my true self. When I really look at who I am, my true self is tainted by sin. Now, to expound upon this a little more, I want you to flip over in your Bibles to Romans chapter 3. And keep in mind that verse in uh, Matthew 5, 4 is what we're talking about. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. That's our main text. But I want to emphasize this whole concept of who I am, my true self is tainted by sin. And we're going to look at Paul's words here to expound upon that. So that it's not me telling you, it's not me telling you that you're, you're sinful as a human being, but it's God's word that makes it clear to us this is who we are. And this section in Romans chapter 3, Paul is really encountering an issue within the church, believers, and if you want emphasis on the fact that these are followers of Jesus that he's writing this to, you can look at chapter 1 verse 7 where he says, this is to those who God loves and has called as saints. And so as we look at Romans chapter 3, Paul is encountering this difficulty in the church where people are saying, well, we were the Jews, we were abiding by the law and the regulations and the rules, and now you're telling us that all these Gentile believers who are outside of the Jewish faith have the same reward as us? How can that be so, Paul? And so he encounters this tension within these people groups. And as much as we would like to think that that tension ceased to exist in the first century church, it has not. 
And we're going to see Paul lay out something clearly that was a core issue in the church he was ministering to, but that we can start to see becomes an issue within our own body. And starting in verse 9 of chapter 3 in Romans, read along with this with me. It says, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, listen to this, are under sin. All, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Paul highlights one of the many truths of Scripture and develops this need that we so often lose sight of, and that is the simple truth that all are under sin. And to emphasize that a little more, you can turn to your neighbor right now and say, I'm a sinner and so are you. Now, oftentimes, oftentimes, it's easy for us to point the finger and say, you're a sinner. You are under sin. But how often do I step back and recognize that in God's eyes, all humanity is under sin? And we go on from there in verse 10, as it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside together. They have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Whoa. Now that paints a very different picture of who we are than often what we would like to say. And should develop in us this realization that my true self is tainted. It's tainted by sin. And church, I say that because I love you. And I include myself in that covering of saying we're all under sin. And we're going to develop that more and you understand why recognizing that is one of the most powerful things we can do as the body of Christ. Because Paul doesn't stop here. If this is where Paul ended his letter, it would be very dark and very discouraging. But he doesn't stop there. Look at verse 21 in Romans chapter 3. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. That's a good place for an amen. So I'm going to read that again and we're going to say amen to that. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, 
whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Praise God, Paul didn't stop at verse 18. But instead, brings to light that my true self is tainted by sin. And yet, there's something else I can recognize out of that. And that's this. My true self is in need of grace. My true self is is in desperate need of grace. See, when we look at Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus, in Ephesians chapter 2, he pulls apart one of the greatest tensions that we struggle with. And that's this reality that you are saved by grace through faith in Jesus. And this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God not by works so that no man can boast. It's a gift. The grace of God as a gift. Now, one of the things I want to clarify, when we say something for grace to become real, my true self has to be revealed, I am not saying, listen to this carefully, I am not saying that God, for God to... Bestow His grace upon His people requires something of us. But rather, what I am seeking to communicate to you is that God has already done that. It's already done. Jesus already showed us what God's grace looked like. He embodied what it meant for God to give His grace. But how is that grace supposed to be real in our lives if we don't first see that we need it? If we don't first step back and recognize, I have a need for grace. And so often, we skip over that first portion and we seek to celebrate something that we have not truly understood that we have not truly grasped. That when Jesus says in Matthew 5, 4, deeply joyful, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. He's referring back to a mourning of who I am. Blessed are those who mourn their sin, who mourn their inability to be righteous. For they will be comforted. And to think about this, as Jesus is teaching this to his disciples and the people who are surrounded, listening in, and he's still doing ministry, people are still convinced that Jesus is going to reign as king right there in the flesh. And how true this becomes after Jesus' death and resurrection. That the true comfort for the one who mourns who they are is the reality that they don't have to continue to mourn because Jesus has conquered over this. Jesus has already done the work. 
Now, the reality is there's some people who might say, well, Matt, so what are you saying? Are we supposed to just mourn all the time? Are we supposed to just be downers in the dumps? Or some people are just really stoic. I'm a follower of Jesus. You're a sinner. Repent. Come to know him. There can be no joy. I'm mourning my sinfulness. Is that what God's called us to? No. In fact, you could look throughout the Psalms. Make a joyful noise to the Lord. Come into his presence with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Paul in Philippians 4 says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. But what's the motive behind those things? Why do I have reason to rejoice in that? Why do I have reason to be joyful? What's the root of that? And if we come back to Scripture, we start to see that when I can mourn my sinfulness, it emphasizes God's love and His grace through Christ. And all of a sudden, who I am and what I do and how I serve becomes motivated Not by something I am, but by something that God has already done. But in many ways, we're a society that avoids mourning. We avoid sorrow. We're constantly seeking to just be happy. How many times have we come to this place together and we really, maybe we didn't even want to come this morning. I just wasn't feeling it. I had to force myself to get in the car and come. And the first thing we say, we walk in the door. Hey, how you doing? I'm doing great. I'm glad to be here. Oh, me too. And in that moment of not being transparent, how much is that limiting my ability to grow further into the grace of God? To be able to recognize that if I'm not okay, that's okay. That if I don't have this all figured out and I don't feel joyful right now, that I can come back to a place and say, man, I'm really thankful that God's grace doesn't depend on me doing something to earn it. That it's a free gift. But for me also to not sit there stoic but to come to a reality of saying, I can mourn who I am as long as I remember the promise of comfort that has come through Jesus' death and resurrection. In his book on the Sermon on the Mount, Kent Hughes says this is really powerful. He says, the saddest thing is not a sorrowing heart, but a heart that is incapable of grief over sin. Why? Because without grief over sin, where does grace fit in? Where does grace fit in? In order for grace to become real, my true self has to be revealed. What power does grace have in our lives if we have no need of it? What purpose was the sacrifice of Christ if only for a momentary prayer... 
or statement of belief rather than a lifetime of transformation. What growth will ever stem from the individual who desires God's presence in their life but has no desire to acknowledge why they are dependent on Him in the first place. You see, when we come to this place of recognizing who I am in light of who God is, of mourning my sin, that's where God intersects and He says, I already took care of that. I've already done that. As an illustration of this practically, some time ago, um, Chuck Colson actually writes of this in one of his books, talks about a 60 Minutes interview where Mike Wallace interviewed a man named Yechael Diner, who was an Auschwitz survivor. And he tells this story of when this man was testifying against his captor, Eichmann, the man who ran the torture camp. And Yechael came into the courtroom for the first time and saw, for the first time since he had been a captive, face to face, this man who had carried out much of what had taken place. And he instantly began to sob uncontrollably and eventually fainted. And he was interviewed later and asked, what was it? Was it fear? Was it those memories that came flooding back into your mind that caused you to just break down mentally? And Yechiel said, no, none of that. He said, I walked into the courtroom and I saw this man and recognized for the first time he wasn't some monster. He wasn't some creature or demon. He was a man. Just like me. And Yechiel said, in that moment I realized that I am capable of everything that was carried out by that man. That I am not outside of that evil, of that wickedness. That that could have easily been me. And the reality of my sinfulness became a reality became true, visible in front of my own eyes. Sin is in all of us. Not just the susceptibility to sin, but sin itself. Jesus gives us this second beatitude because it reveals the necessity for us to truly face our sin. So the logical question after all of that becomes, is there any hope for us? Is there any positive in this? Is there any hope for us at all? I want you to flip over in your Bibles now to 1 John. 1 John chapter 1. First John chapter 1, starting in verse 5, it says this. This is the message we have heard from Him and proclaimed to you. 
that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Verse 7. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Listen to this. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Jesus has promised forgiveness. He's promised to cleanse us from who we are. But that's not something we can do of our own accord. If we confess our sins, if we acknowledge our sinfulness, <laughs> I'm a sinful person. I'm in desperate need of grace. My true self. He's offered forgiveness. To cleanse us from all of that. God is longing for you to recognize your need for Him. He's yearning for you to turn from your sinfulness and walk in newness of life. The present and future promise for those who mourn is the comfort of the one who has made a way to himself. Blessed, deeply joyful, because you will be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn. Because the comfort of God through Christ is there. It's there. So how do we apply this? We need to grieve our sinful state to mourn who we are in our flesh. But to do that in light of what God has promised as the means of comfort. He's already provided that. To emphasize this one more, flip, flip with me one more time. We're going to go to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Second Corinthians chapter 7, we're going to start in verse 5 of this. And here Paul talks about grief in a way that we often don't think about it, but it's so applicable this morning. As you're flipping there, some of you remember, uh, have studied a little bit of Paul's first letter to the Corinthian church, and it was a lot of reminding them where they're supposed to be. Reminding them of the things that they've been taught previous. And yet they were falling back into these sinful patterns. And Paul is reminding them of all of these things. Encouraging them to walk in faithfulness towards what God has called them to. And so now he writes a second letter to them. And in chapter 7 of 2 Corinthians, starting in verse 5, he says, For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest. But we were afflicted at every turn. Fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted. 
as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoice still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while, as it is, I rejoice. Not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourself innocent in the matter. Church, we need to confess our sin. Recognizing that we're called to Christ-likeness. We need to rise up again by the power of His grace and remain motivated by His faithfulness. We need to remind ourselves that God's grace has, be, has been given. It's already been given through Christ. But it only becomes truly real in our own lives when I recognize who I truly am. God's grace becomes real when my true self is revealed. When who I am becomes evident. Now we're going to transition here into a time of song. Some of you wondered why we just had one song and then the message. This is because today we need to come to a place of mourning. And many of you, some of you here, you may have known nothing different than the gospel of Jesus. It was proclaimed to you from very early on. Praise God for that. And yet, sometimes, when that is just the norm, we fail to truly recognize our sin. To truly acknowledge who I am. And in that light, maybe you've struggled with this idea of God's grace given freely to you. Maybe you've really wrestled with that. That God, in spite of who you are in your sin, in spite of what you've done, has said, I will pay the price for you. And if that's you, you need to be able to mourn that. To mourn your sin so that clearly God's grace is celebrated. And I can say, it's not dependent on me. And others of you here today, maybe you've never encountered this before. And you're here and you recognize, I have not been able to do this. I feel like I try and I try and I fail and I fail again. And you come to a place where you're just ready to give up. And God's saying, no, 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 don't give up. Mourn your sin. Grieve over who you are, but recognize who I am. And recognize that I've done all of this for you. That you might experience life. True life that doesn't shift or change. Deep joy, blessedness. Because I promised to comfort you. 
And so, in light of that this morning, I've asked our elders to come down and be present today, up front, to give you the chance to respond to this. And so if you're here today and you recognize you're in one of these camps, whether it be recognizing a need to mourn my sin or recognizing that I haven't given my life to Christ at all. I haven't sought to be comforted by Him whatsoever. I want you to come. No matter where you're at. And whether it's that you need prayer today to refocus and be reminded of God's grace, or you just need to come kneel before the cross, I want you to come. And come at any point as we're singing, and then we're just going to worship We're going to worship together in light of who God is. In light of our own recognition of our need for God's grace. That's why we're going to sing. And so as we sing together, sing loud, sing strong, because there is a Redeemer. And Jesus has comforted us through His death and resurrection to say, you are not in bondage to the sin. You're free in Christ. So as we sing, come, pray, be restored, and then let's worship together the name of God who has offered comfort through His Son that we could leave here today understanding and knowing there is life in Jesus. Heavenly Father, may this be a powerful reminder to us to die to our old self and walk in newness of life, seeing that You've offered comfort for those who recognize their sin and desire to walk in newness. Bring us to a place of godly grief and repentance over who we are in light of who you are. We pray this all in Jesus' name.